You guys can open your Bibles to Revelation 1. And uh, if, if it's too loud or too quiet, just let Dan know and he'll, he'll adjust it over here. Um, I just want to be honest, I feel really inadequate to bring the weight of the text that we're looking at this morning. And even as I look at the faces in the room, um, all the more I feel the need to press in, and, and the Lord has already affirmed the direction and the, um, the heart of this message, as you guys have been sharing already. And um, I just I want to give you a disclaimer that we're going to talk about death, and if you need to leave the room for a moment, feel free to do that, but um, we're going to do battle, we're going to do spiritual warfare, and um, we're going to confront the lies of Satan right now. So would you guys pray with me? We need intercession right now. Jesus, you are the living one, the son of man who came to seek and save the lost by the shedding of your own blood. Lord, I declare the truth that we should not fear death because you have defeated it. The king is alive. Lord, would you speak through me? Lord, protect us from spiritual attack, from opposition, um, and help this to land on the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name. Man, I've been on the brink of tears all morning, and I can't explain why, but bear with me. I know the answer to this, but have you guys stopped to consider the power and the prevalence of the narrative of death that encompasses humanity? Death both literally and figuratively consumes us. And if you haven't already been cut from the inside out by the loss of a loved one, and then you have definitely been shaped externally and indirectly by the narrative of death. And if you have experienced the tragic pain of losing someone you love, that narrative only serves to amplify the pain. The external narrative reminds you again and again. And just think about all the stories and the songs throughout history fiction, non-fiction, that have direct access to our hearts and minds. From playwrights and troubadours to authors and directors, centuries of the death narrative are continuously being compiled and delivered right to our hearts through all the means of modern media. Death surrounds us it shapes us, it shatters us, it scares us, and it entertains us. Think about all the stories that rise and fall on the death of a character. Scroll through Netflix and try to find a show or a movie without death in it. Think about all the evil dictators throughout history 
the warlords, the drug lords who have amassed great wealth and power by wielding death as a weapon. Think about the headlines just in our own city. Proclaiming daily victory after victory of death over life. Why do we care about stopping the spread of COVID? Why do we protest police brutality? Why are we concerned with health care, airport security, gun violence, traffic safety, mental health? Why are we concerned about those things? Because we don't want people to die. Is that right? Death surrounds us and it shapes us. It shatters us, it scares us, and sadly, it entertains us. And the revelation of Jesus Christ is written to speak directly to a people who are in that reality. This book in the Bible, the revelation to John of Jesus Christ, written and delivered to us, was specifically to speak to this issue. The church is continually harassed and assaulted and perplexed and persecuted by the threat of death, the effects of death, the fear of death, death itself. The pressure of death is always pushing down on us. Do you guys feel that? And as Dan has already explained, the purpose of the book of Revelation, and you can go ahead and throw that slide up there, is to stir the church toward an enduring hope and holiness in our sovereign victor, Jesus Christ, so that we might overcome. The fact is that death is a reality for all humanity. And it's a powerful reality. Death rules the world right now, not because God designed it that way, but because we stepped outside of his design for us. And from the beginning, the promised consequence, the only possible result of our disobedience is death. All that God had so beautifully designed has been violently turned on its head as humanity chose sin and death over obedience and life. Can you guys see how Satan has shifted his lie throughout the course of history? At the very beginning, he said, you will not surely die if you eat that fruit. But he's changed his story. Oops, I got you with that one. And now he's saying, death is normal. This is how it's supposed to be. This is just a part of the fabric of life. You can't escape it. But that's a lie. One of the biggest lies that we can believe is that death is king. I'm going to say it again. One of the biggest lies that we can believe is that death is king, that we can't escape it, that we can't run from it, we can't hide from it. We must submit to its power. Our text for today, Revelation verse, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, exposes that lie. It flips it on its head. God is life. He's the source of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's the purpose of life. He is the living one. And Jesus has defeated death forevermore. But even if you know Christ, and even if you believe that, 
the effects and the pain of death are still very present and very real. Sometimes I feel like the human experience is boiled down to one of two categories. We're either attempting to avoid death or we're scheming to cause death. And if you're not doing either, it's you seem to be watching a show about one or the other. Well, the substance of our text today is John's encounter with the living one, the resurrected Christ. And it's this encounter with Jesus that compels him, that requires him to capture what he saw, to write it down, to send it out, because we need this assurance, don't we? We need this confidence. John was completely undone by the majesty and the glory of Jesus, and he was filled with confidence in his risen King Jesus. And that's our confidence today. That's what we need. We have to go there. We have to confront death in the face with the confidence in our risen King Jesus who's defeated death. Death is defeated. The King is alive. And here's the point for today. It's, it's very simple, but so loaded. As a Christian, you're called to patiently endure tribulation without fear, because Jesus defeated death. Let's read the verses together. Revelation 1, starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Fear not. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So write the things that you've seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. As we jump into this text, John's shifting gears from his 
epistolary greeting, and he's, he's turning to the content of the apocalyptic prophecy that he's about to receive, that he has received and has set to write about. As he introduces and sets the scene for us, he makes this brief statement in verse 9. I want to highlight as an essential part of the entire book of Revelation. It clues us into the purpose of the book and our entire outlook as Christians. In verse 9, he says, I am your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Here's the first point for today. Your identity with Jesus requires requires enduring through tribulation. So let me just unpack that for a minute. The word tribulation carries the sense of of pressure, of affliction, of um, distress. And there are generally three types of tribulation that Scripture speaks to and Revelation will speak to. Picture them like overlapping circles side by side. One category of tribulation is reserved for those who have rejected God. And it will come by the hand of God as judgment on the wicked. But the second category is reserved for those who have declared their allegiance to Christ. And this type of tribulation will come by the hands of those who oppose Christ. The third category is in the middle, overlapping both. It's common to everyone, both God's children and God's enemies, and that's the general curse of death on this earth that we live in every day and all of its effects. The death of our bodies, the death of our souls, the death of our relationships, the death of everything that we know falls in that category of common tribulation on this earth. And every human is going to experience two of the three at some point, guaranteed, without fail. But what we're concerned with, what John is speaking to, what the book of Revelation addresses, is the two categories that apply to the people of God. Both the common tribulation we face as we live in a world of death, and the tribulation that's reserved only for God's people as they are in a world that is opposed to God. I would argue that this tribulation includes things like, but is not limited to, hurtful speech, humiliation, slander, rejection, physical violence, political and societal exclusion, physical pain, even torture, and physical death. And there's probably much more that could go into that. But as a person who identifies with Jesus, it is required that we endure through those two categories of tribulation. So the fact is that when you decide to follow Jesus, you actually go from tribulation to more tribulation. You go from common tribulation to unique tribulation for a time. The intensity of that tribulation, that pressure upon you, is going to rise and fall at times. It's going to be more intense at times, less intense at times. 
but it's always going to be tied to your witness, your faithful testimony of Jesus Christ. When you declare your allegiance to Jesus, you're planting a flag in enemy territory, and you're declaring yourself a target for the enemy's opposition. And I have in my notes the verse that Ali just read. The most familiar expression, I think, of this idea is Jesus' words in John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. And we'll get to the second half in a minute. The way John intertwines these three words in verse 9, the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance, he indicates that there's a necessary connection. They're all intertwined together, and they're found where? In Jesus. The tribulation that's in Jesus, the kingdom that's in Jesus, and the endurance. When we identify with him, we step into that. Part of what it means to rule as a kingdom and priest to God that Dan talked about last week in the present moment is that you're inviting persecution. You're inviting tribulation. You are taking that on as you step into the kingdom of God. Historical sources would suggest that John, as he wrote this, was a prisoner on the island of Patmos at the hands of the Roman Empire. He says that he was here on account of hard labor. He might have been wearing chains. He was probably in isolation. This was a man who was staring in the face of tribulation, always aware of the reality of death. Yet in the midst of tribulation, where do we find him? Look at verse 10. Where was he? Shout it out, Millie. Where was he? In the spirit on the Lord's day. In the midst of tribulation, John was in the spirit on the Lord's day, worshiping and trusting and enduring this persecution. It's this humble, faith-filled posture of worship that is necessary to encounter the Lord. He doesn't unveil his glory to those who are opposed to him until the last day when it's too late. I pray that Mercy Gate Church would be known for that posture of faith-filled, humble worship in the midst of tribulation. I pray that we would be known as a people who in the face of death are in the spirit on the Lord's day. And as he's there, the Lord reveals himself. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. This is John's prophetic commissioning. This is God authoritatively sending him to prophesy to the church to bring us the confidence and assurance that we need. So as we unpack this vision of the living one, here's the second point. Your identity with Jesus not only requires enduring persecution and tribulation, but it enables enduring through tribulation. Jesus calls you to endure tribulation, but he enables the endurance. The greatest opposition that we face in this lifetime is the threat of death, is it not? 
what's the worst somebody can do to you other than take your life? They can hurt you, then they can take your life, and that's it. Jesus would say, do not fear the ones who can just kill the body, right? Who are we supposed to fear? The one who has the power to destroy both body and soul. And the one who has that power is also the one who has the power to save us from death. Jesus has been exalted to the highest place because he overcame death through his own physical death and resurrection. He has disarmed and put to shame every enemy and the last enemy, death itself. And he holds the key to life. I want to just explain briefly what's happening in verses 12 through 16. What we have here is like, I'm picturing uh, the old school transparencies on an overhead projector. And Jesus is coming to John with these different transparencies, and each one has a little picture from the Old Testament that describes what God is like. And he brings this stack of transparencies, and he stacks it up on top of that light, and he projects it. And here we see Jesus with all these bits and pieces of prophetic vision that for centuries confused people. And he's revealing himself with all of these together in himself. He's largely drawing from the narrative that takes place in Daniel chapter 7 through 12, specifically Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. And I wish we had time to just go through that in and of itself. So that's a homework assignment. Study Daniel 7, Daniel 10. Um, It's loaded, it's massive, it's incredible. But what we have in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and following, is a courtroom scene. A courtroom and a throne room scene. And Daniel's seeing the thrones being set up, and there's the Ancient of Days, the eternal God, ruling on the throne. And there's thousands upon thousands serving him, and he's setting up the court to bring judgment. He's opening the books. And here comes the Son of Man on the clouds, the one to whom is given dominion over all things, the Son of Man who has defeated death and has handed the kingdom. That's what's happening in Daniel chapter 7 through 10. And here Jesus reveals himself in the very same language of that picture. And John knew it. John was aware of it. John sees seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of those lampstands, he sees one like the Son of Man. In Mark chapter 14, when Jesus stands on trial, they ask him directly, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And what does he say? You have said so, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Jesus declares himself to be the Messiah, the one that Daniel envisioned, and the one who now is revealing himself to John as the Messiah who has conquered death. But he's clothed in a long robe with a golden sash. This clues us in to the priestly role of Jesus. All the way back to Exodus, 
the priest was to wear a linen robe that was laced with gold. Later in scripture, we see kings wearing a very similar robe. But it clues us in that Jesus, clothed in this priestly garment, has now taken on the role of the high priest. He's Messiah, he's high priest. But the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. This is a description of the Ancient of Days, the eternal God, Yahweh, the I Am. And Jesus reveals himself to be that very same God. His long white hair symbolizes eternity. And his pure, white, beautiful nature depicts his purity. He washes away our sins like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Some of you may have seen the show, The Chosen, and uh, I think they, they kind of capture this in that show. When Jesus locks eyes with the person that he loves, that he's going to minister to, you see the flame of fire in his eyes. You see the love burning and the compassion that he has upon his people. Jesus' eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. There's something again of his purity. He's been refined and refined again. He is perfect. He is sinless. Not that he was refined from sin before, but he was made perfect through his suffering even more. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. I imagine this was personal to John as he lived on the island, surrounded by the sea, absent from his friends and loved ones, and all he hears day in and day out is the roar of the sea. And here Jesus is revealing himself as the one who Ezekiel saw and heard, who has the voice like a multitude of waters, powerful. When he speaks, nothing can hold him back. And in his right hand, he holds seven stars. We'll come back to that. But not only is he the Messiah and the high priest and the king, he is a prophet. He has a sword coming from his mouth, a two-edged sword. And this isn't a small, weak sword. This isn't a fencing saber. This is a sword constructed to do battle. This is a sword that destroys or brings life. The word of God has the power to create and the power to destroy. It's two-edged. It's sharp. He is the ultimate prophet. And his face is shining like the sun in full strength. His glory is so magnificent, you can't look at it. This is the foundation for all that's to come in the book of Revelation. Jesus knew that without this revelation of himself to John, then everything else that he's going to describe and show him would destroy him without the confidence in the I am, the living one. As Jesus reveals himself in that moment, he is deserving of fear. And John's only response is to fall dead, as though dead, at his feet. But I want to communicate that it's the same, the same power and glory and authority 
that causes us to fall as though dead before him, that also relieves our fear. And as John falls before him, what does he do? Again, this speaks back to Daniel chapter 10. He lays his hand on me and he says, fear not. Even though I am one to be greatly feared, fear not. Because I am the first and the last, the living one. And all of this comes down to this statement. All of the authority that Jesus has, all the power, all the exaltation, the dominion that he has, comes down to the fact that he died and behold is alive forevermore. That's the basis for our confidence and our assurance and our hope and our faith in the midst and the face of persecution even unto death is that Jesus Christ is the living one who has died and is alive forevermore and it's he that holds the keys of death and Hades. If you want to live outside of the rule of death, you have to cling to this Jesus you have to cling to the living one because he is the only one who holds the keys to life. He's the only one who has authority and power and ability to rescue us from the rule of death that's around us. And I would turn uh, in your Bibles to Hebrews 2. It speaks to this so beautifully. Hebrews chapter 2. Starting in verse 7, it says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. There's that dominion. The king, the king of all kings. You've crowned him with glory and honor, and you've put everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. That's where we live right now. We don't yet see death in subjection to him, though it is. But we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Skip down to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Surely it's not the angels that he helps, but it's the offspring of Abraham, us. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When you identify with Jesus, you're required to face tribulation. 
but it's through his suffering and his victory over death that he enables you to endure. The song Rejoice came to mind as I was writing this. He has walked this path before us and he is walking with us still. The only way we can escape the power of death, the fear of death, the effects of death is to cling to Christ the living one, to fall as though dead before his feet, to cast ourselves on his mercy because he is the one who died and is alive forevermore. But even though we know this, I don't think this is new to anyone in here, even though we know this deep down in our souls that Jesus is holding us fast as we sang, even when we know and we believe deep down that he's going to raise us up to a glorified, resurrected body, standing before the face of death is sobering. Experiencing the loss of loved one is painful. And a near-death experience can change your life, can't it? I think about this every time I look at our car and I see the bullet hole in the side that's right next to where my son's car seat is. And I will probably never get that bullet hole fixed because it speaks to the, to the protection and the, the faithfulness of my God in the face of death. A near-death experience will change your life. And what's even more sobering than staring death in the face is doing it alone, is it not? My heart goes out to all of those who have lost loved ones this year as a result of COVID or other sickness, and they were not allowed to say goodbye. Facing death in isolation may be the deepest, darkest despair that we can experience as a human. How can Jesus expect us to follow him in tribulation in the face of death, knowing full well that we're going to die, and there's a very good chance we might die alone? How can he expect that? How can he call us into that? Because he's with us. He is with us. This is the final point. Your identity with Jesus guarantees his presence through tribulation. Look at verse 19. The imagery is stunning, and it takes me a really long time to explain this very well. But notice how Jesus communicates this truth. Verse 19, again, he repeats his commission to John. I want you to write these things. Write the things that you've seen. Write the things that are and the things that are to take place. Why? Because Jesus loves his people and he knows we need this assurance. He knows that you right now need this assurance, which is why it's been preserved in Scripture from then until now. Because Jesus loves you. He knows that left on our own, Without him, we would crumble under the weight of death. We would, we would be sidelined by the threat of death, and we would be ineffective in his kingdom. 
He wants his people to know that in the darkest night, he is present among them as the resurrected king who holds the key to death and hell. And here's how he portrays that. Almost nonchalantly, he circles back in verse 20. Oh yeah, by the way, as for the mystery of the seven stars and the seven lampstands, the stars are the angels of the churches and the lampstands are the churches. When the Lord loosed his people from slavery in Egypt thousands of years prior in the Exodus account, He led them to a mountain where he revealed his glory to Moses and he laid out for them how they were to worship him. He gave them the law, right? He gave them all of the procedures they were to follow in worship. And he laid out the design for the tent of meeting and all of its articles and its utensils. And it's there in Exodus 25 that we first see the golden lampstand, the beautiful handcrafted, pure gold lampstand. It had, it had seven branches and would hold seven oil lamps, the, the menorah that you know. And in Exodus 27, verses 20 and 21, he gives us a glimpse into the purpose. He doesn't explain it very fully, but he gives us a glimpse. The people are to bring a sacrifice of pure olive oil And the priest's responsibility is to make sure that the lampstand is burning from dawn, from dusk until dawn. Through the darkness of night, the lampstand would be burning in the presence of the Lord. And it was the priest's duty to ensure that that flame was burning. As you fast forward through scripture, the the seven-branch lampstand turns into ten separate lampstands in the temple, and then Zechariah has a vision of a lampstand with a bowl and seven lamps. But outside of that, we don't know a whole lot until the New Testament. And you listen to Jesus teach about himself being the light of the world, And the fact that we don't bring out a lamp to put it under a basket, but to put it on a lampstand. When you take into account the the wording in the book of Acts and what happened on Pentecost, the flame of fire that was hovering over the, the saints, the presence of God by way of the Holy Spirit burning among his people. And then you think about Paul's teaching about light that we are called to be a light in the world, that we are called to be a light exposing the works of darkness. And then you think about John's teaching on light in 1 John, that we are to walk in the light. When you take all these into account, we can't escape the presence language that we talked about in our last sermon series. We can't escape the presence of God by way of his Holy Spirit among his people as a flame of fire. And so here we see the church as the golden lampstands. And this number seven, as Dan already explained, is a number of perfection and completion. The seven-branched lampstand in the tabernacle is now seven golden lampstands spread throughout the world, burning with the presence of the Lord. And where is Jesus in the picture? He's in the midst of the lampstands. 
He's not absent. He's not far off. He's in the middle of the lampstands. As they burn with his Holy Spirit presence, he is there among them. The light of the world has been brought out in Jesus, right? And it's been set on the lampstand of the churches by his pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And enduring tribulation, I got to communicate this. We don't sit in the darkness and wait for the light to come. You guys catch that? We don't sit in the darkness waiting for the light to come because the light has already come. The light is present and the light is burning in you. To endure tribulation with Jesus present among us means that we are always in his presence. We are giving sway to the presence of the Holy Spirit. Our words and our deeds are bearing witness about Christ, that he's risen and that he's Lord. We're ever before the face of God. And when that's how we live and that's how we worship, his flame is burning brightly. I think there's an interesting little phrase in the Exodus 27, verse 21. He says, this will be a statute forever. The priests will keep the lamp burning through the night, and this will be a statute forever. Think about that. The lampstand doesn't exist anymore. We don't know where that menorah is. We don't have the temple. We don't have the tabernacle. But that's, that's an eternal statute that he put into place. How is this still happening? Because Jesus, our high priest, has taken on the duty of the priests in keeping that flame burning, right? Jesus, our high priest, has given us the flame of his spirit. We're the lampstand, and he's still burning in the darkness. We are not sitting in the darkness waiting for the light to come. We are called to sit in the darkness with the flame burning brightly. This is how Jesus wages war against the kingdom of death and darkness through an army of lampstands that is burning bringing the light to the, to the dark world. So what do you do when you face the deepest, darkest tribulation? What do you do when you're staring death in the face in many, its many forms? What do we do? How do we overcome? How do we take hope in this text? We let him burn. We get out of the way. We fall before him and let him burn. We let his presence be known in the darkness. And I just want to be clear and practical. That happens through our words and our actions. This isn't some vague, far-off thing. We let the presence of the Lord burn in us through our words and our deeds, through our obedience, through our testimony, through our witness about Christ. When the oil burns down to the last drop and the wick is black and scorched, our great high priest steps in and he trims the wick and he fills us with oil so that we can burn more brightly. But if that wasn't enough, that Jesus is present among us, he's present by his spirit, he's present among the lampstands. Look back at verse 20. There's seven stars that are the angels of the churches. And in verse 16, he, he reveals that he is holding those angels in his hand. We have to interpret this text as it is, that these are supernatural spiritual beings. These are not human messengers. These are real angels. 
that in some way, we don't, we don't understand it, but in some way, they're commissioned, they're given responsibility, they are corporately identified with the people of God. They are the heavenly representative of us, and he is holding them in his sovereign hand. The, the, the angels, as Hebrews would say, are ministering spirits sent for the sake of the elect who will inherit salvation. If it wasn't enough to have God himself present among us, he gives us his army of angels. Think about that. He's surrounding us, as we talked about earlier. He has supernatural warriors protecting and defending and leading us. And often we don't even think about that. So with all that in mind, what do we have to fear? What do we have to fear? As we identify with Christ and we we humble ourselves and trust in the sufficiency of his sacrifice. We declare that we're now a person of God. You're stepping into tribulation. But as you step into Christ, you're stepping into the patient endurance that he provides through his victory. You're stepping into his very real, very powerful presence as he seeks to advance his kingdom in the darkness. As a Christian, you are called to patiently endure tribulation. And as we progress through the book of Revelation, we will see again and again the reality of tribulation and death and the spiritual warfare that's happening that we don't see with our physical eyes. We're called to endure that tribulation in the face of death, the darkest of nights, without fear, because Jesus has overcome. Let's pray. Before I pray, I have three questions. As Dan mentioned last week, we will either know Jesus as our Savior or as our judge. The question for you is, do you know Jesus as your Savior and not as your judge? The next question is this. If your identity is in Christ the living one, you call yourself a Christian, you identify with him. Do you exalt the power of death through your thoughts, your words, and your entertainment choices? Are you exalting the power of death are you giving sway to it? As children of light, we are called to burn with the presence of the Lord, declaring life over death, declaring Jesus' victory. I don't think we can fill ourselves with story after story about death and murder and violence and rightly burn with the truth of life that we carry. Do you exalt the power of death or the power of Jesus over death? My last question 
when it comes to waging war against the darkness, are you burning brightly or are you covering the lamp? Are you letting him burn you up? Or have you burned out? Jesus, I pray that you would weigh heavy on us this morning. Oh, I don't take lightly these words. I don't take lightly the fact that death hurts so much. Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm lifting up my brothers and sisters in this room right now because I know death hurts. But I believe that you, you've led us to this text and you've led these people to this room to hear this text because we need the confidence of your victory over death, Jesus, our King, the living one. So Lord, would you, would you weigh heavy upon us Help us to fall before you in your presence and let you burn in us. In Jesus' name. We're going to participate in the Lord's table. Um, once again, this participation in the Lord's table is for those who know the Lord, who have experience the forgiveness of his sins, who walk in his way. Um, and so what I'm going to ask us to do is go ahead and come forward, grab the elements from the table, and we'll return to our seats and, and take them together at our seats. So let's go ahead and come forward. Oftentimes when we take the Lord's table, we 
are remembering his death. And that's right. That's good. <laughs> we should. The elements represent just that. A blood that was poured out for us. A body broken for us. But we don't want to exalt his death over his resurrection. His death becomes meaningful because he was resurrected, right? It was his vindication. He was raised because his sacrifice was complete. It was full, it was full, full right? And, and it was without any kind of lack. There was nothing in what he accomplished that had any weakness nor, nor just kind of, you know, some sort of fracture in what he's accomplished. There is no weakness whatsoever in what he accomplished. And the validation of that is his resurrection. It is the fact that we can read a text like this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and turning I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands the church one like the son of man and he was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest the hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow his eyes were like a flame of fire his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace his voice was like the roar of many waters he is still speaking in his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its fullness and Jesus says fear not my church <laughs> fear not I am the first and the last and the living one I died yes and behold I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades when we sign up to follow Jesus, yep, it's going to ensure that we face tribulation. But the fact of the matter is even in remembering his death, we are glorifying his life. He is resurrected. One who now is enabling us to endure well. One who now even guarantees because of what he's accomplished. He guarantees that we will overcome as he is overcome. He shares with us his incredible victory. So when we take the elements and remember his death, oh, we do so to recognize that his death was sufficient because we have a living King and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's together take and eat the elements. Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your word testifies for what is real and true right now. Spirit of God, thank you that you are in our midst. Jesus, thank you that you are present by your spirit. Thank you that all that you've accomplished now is granted to your people. And Lord, I, I just... I stand with James's word, Lord, let us burn brightly for you. 
Let us shine brightly through all, even through, may our losses be something of the channel through which your light shines, that it accomplishes something for the sake of your mission. Lord, we lay our, our, our grief and our even anger and frustration, the reality of loss before you, and say, God, redeem it, redeem it. Take what has been lost and use it as a beacon for your kingdom. May many now come to faith in you, trusting in the one who has power over death and Hades. Lord, may it be, redeem our losses for your namesake. May you burn brightly through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.